Well, good morning. My name is Ken, and I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch. And with Peter and Emily leading the service and me giving the sermon, it's like Team America today. Um, I was actually um, told by somebody this week, uh, an American that I was speaking to, said that um, I have a nice mid-Atlantic accent. I have no idea what that means, except it means I don't sound like I'm from here, and apparently I don't sound like I'm from there anymore either. So if you see me swimming somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, that's because nobody wants me anymore. Um, Why don't we pray as we uh, open up this passage and try to understand it. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Uh, thank you that um, it, uh, it's really enlightening on um, what you have for us and what you want for us uh, as your people. And so pray uh, this morning as we um, have this encouragement and this, this warning from you to watch. Please, Lord, help us to be people who watch. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I was, uh, Emmy and I were coming back from a friend's house on a Saturday night. Uh, it's about maybe 10 o'clock. And uh, we were at a friend's house who lives out sort of Wavertree area, and we called an Uber, uh, or we, I did this to get an Uber, um, and uh, got in the, in the taxi, and as he's driving us back, uh, you know, that's like prime time for people going into town to go out. And so as we were going back to our house, which is in town, the taxi driver, I think, just assumed that Emmy and I were on our way uh, for a night on the town. Clearly, he doesn't know me. And, uh, and so he said, uh, so what, you know, what are you guys up to tonight? And I said, oh, we're going home. And he goes, you're going home? It's Saturday night. And I said, yeah, yeah, we're going home. And he goes, well, what are you doing the rest of the weekend? Why are you going home to go to bed on a Saturday night? And I said, uh, I said um, well, we're, we're Christians, and so we're, we're going to church tomorrow morning. And I could only see his eyes in the, the rearview mirror, mirror. And this is what I saw in the rearview mirror. It was like a cartoon. I'd never seen anybody actually do that before. And his eyes were just wide. Like, he could not comprehend that two people who weren't, let's say, in their 70s would be going to church on a Sunday morning, would actually dedicate part of their weekend, part of their time off to go to church. He couldn't comprehend it. And so we started this conversation. I said, uh, I said so what, what do you believe? What, what is it that, that, that you believe? And, and he started to talk about... Uh, this sort of moral philosophy that he really adheres to. And, um, and, uh, and then he said to me, he goes, okay, complete, total, open door. Why should I believe what you believe? Why should I become a Christian? I had 45 seconds before we got to our house. <laughs> so I gave the fastest, probably most incoherent gospel presentation anybody has ever given uh, in the history of Christianity. And I didn't really have very far to get into the conversation, um, but I didn't get as far as I wanted to because he, you know, he wanted to kick us out so he can get another fare. But I wanted to ask him after I, after I shared the gospel with him, what do you think of Jesus? Who, who do you think Jesus really is? Because it's the answer to that question. The answer to that question is actually a question that each and every one of us ultimately needs to answer. And maybe you didn't know that you need to answer that question, but you do. Listen, if Jesus is who he claimed to be, it is of infinite significance to each and every one of us. And what you think of him is actually the most important thing about you as a person. I didn't have time to ask the taxi driver this question, but I ask this question Um, all the time to people. Who do you think Jesus really is? What do you think about the person of Jesus? And typically the answer that I get back is they say, well, he was a great man. 
He was a really good moral teacher. And sometimes they might even say he's a prophet. And that's, that's what the taxi driver thought when he told me about his views. He said he really likes Jesus' moral teachings and he tries to follow them. That fits within this philosopher that he likes to follow. But the problem with that answer, the problem with the answer that Jesus is just a good moral teacher, maybe a prophet, the problem with that is that Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He claimed to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if that isn't true, then he's a liar. So he couldn't have been a moral teacher. So when I say to people who aren't Christians that I think Jesus is the Son of God, they have a really difficult time accepting that. And maybe that's you. Maybe you have a really difficult time accepting that Jesus is the Son of God. And the passage that we're looking at today, it actually forces us to answer this question that's on the screen, who is Jesus? So what about you? Who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus Christ really is? And remember what we've been looking at for the last five or six weeks now. We've been looking at Jesus' very last trip to the temple before he dies. The last time that he goes there. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 13, which we looked at last week, the disciples, they make this comment to Jesus as they walk out of the temple. In verse 1 of chapter 13, they say, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're walking out of this magnificent building built on massive stones. And the disciples were marveling at this building. Josh said to us last week, it's a lot like what happens when you pass the Anglican Cathedral as you walk down Duke Street into town. But then Jesus says something very startling to them in response. Look at what he says in verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And they, they, they couldn't imagine anything like that ever happening. I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine the Anglican cathedral completely toppled? I mean, it's so big. It's so sturdy. It's unimaginable that it could ever be raised to the ground. Well, that's what Jesus says is going to happen to the temple. And then in verse 4, the disciples ask him, when? When will these things happen? And And the rest of the first half of Mark 13, which again we looked at last week, Jesus describes a time that will come in their lifetime. Before these people die, when the Romans will come and they're going to siege the city of Jerusalem. And then when they finally take the city, they're going to desecrate the temple and they're going to raise it to the ground. Not one stone left. And it's important for us to know that the desecration and the destruction of the temple isn't just the loss of a nice building. It's the, very cent- the temple is the very center of their lives. The temple is how they relate to God. It's where their sins are paid for. It's where God gives them grace and mercy through the sacrifices. And so to not have the temple, to not have this place where God's presence dwells, where you go and you sacrifice and God gives you His grace and His mercy, to not have that, to have that taken away, means to not have God's mercy, not his forgiveness. And that's what it means to lose the temple. And so Jesus is talking about a monumental shift for the Jewish people. And when we pick up the passage in today's reading, Jesus, he's still talking about that time. He's still talking about the day 
which as he's speaking is in the future. The day when Jerusalem will be taken by the Roman army and the temple will be destroyed. And what he shows us is that the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, it's actually it's a foreshadowing of the end of the world. It's a foreshadowing of Judgment Day. It's a foreshadowing of his second coming to this earth. And as he describes this foreshadowing, he actually answers our question. Who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? The passage, it answers our question in, in three ways. It says that Jesus is the ultimate prophet, that he's the ultimate priest, and it says that he's the ultimate king. So first, Jesus is the ultimate prophet. How, how do you tell if somebody's really a prophet? Well, you know they're a prophet if what they said was going to happen, happens. Uh, a little over a year ago, I was giving a, a radio interview on a news program about U.S. gun control laws. Because apparently I'm the guy you call when you're the news and you want to talk to somebody about American gun control laws. And uh, they asked me four questions about these gun control laws. But the last one, keep in mind, this is when Donald Trump had gotten into the race. And here's the last question they asked. It's already looking like this will be, gun control will be a big issue in the presidential elections this year. And Donald Trump says he'd repeal these laws as soon as possible if he gets into the White House. Do you think there's a genuine possibility enough Americans would vote for him? It's kind of a stretch on an interview about gun control. And do you know what my answer was? I said something like, we all need to start getting used to saying the words President Trump. That was my answer. Now I'd completely forgotten about that interview even and the question. Fast forward now uh, about over a year into the future to the early morning hours of November 8th, 2017. And then about 7.20 a.m. GMT, Donald Trump was declared the winner and be, would become president. And so my prediction had come true. Am I a prophet? That's what I thought in that moment. Maybe I'm a prophet. <laughs> well, of course it's not true. That was just a prediction. It was, it was a guess. I didn't have any special knowledge. It wasn't like I could see into the future. I didn't have a word from the Lord from on high, you know, and there wasn't angels and stuff, you know, sounding trumpets as I heard Donald Trump. I didn't hear that. It was just a guess. And it turned out to be right. I'm not a prophet because being a prophet isn't just making predictions. It's not guessing. The biblical prophets were people who spoke the very words of God to God's people. That's what a prophet is. Prophets weren't sharing their own words, their own ideas. They weren't making speculations. They were speaking the very words of God. They were the mouthpiece for the Lord. And if what they said was going to happen happened, then everybody else recognized them as a prophet. That's how you know if someone is a prophet. Well, let's test Jesus' words here in verses 23 to 31. Take a look at verse 23. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Well, he certainly sounds like a prophet, doesn't he? He uses this very vivid, powerful, extreme imagery of the sun being darkened, the moon not shining, and even the stars and the planets falling from the sky. This is a very prophetic language. In fact, he doesn't just sound like a prophet. He's actually quoting a prophet. It's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 13. In Isaiah 13, we read about 
God's coming judgment on the nation of Babylon. And here's how Isaiah describes it. Chapter 13, verse 10. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Jesus says the same thing that Isaiah said. And so what's Isaiah doing here with this vivid language of sun and moon and stars refusing to shine? Well, Isaiah is using figurative language to describe earth-shattering political change that was on the horizon. In fact, the Old Testament prophets often describe the destruction of earthly kingdoms using heavenly language like this, of the darkened sun and moon and of stars falling from the sky and the earth shaking. It's all through the prophets, this language. It was the prophet's way of saying these monumental shifts that happen on earth are actually rooted in what is declared and what happens in the heavenly throne room. These two things are connected. And here's what the prophets were showing us every time they said this. Every time a nation falls, every time a city comes crashing down, that is a picture of the last day when every nation will fall. Every city will come crashing down and the whole earth will be destroyed as God judges the sins of the world. That's what the prophets are pointing to. And so in Mark 13, Jesus, he's actually speaking as a prophet. He's explaining to the disciples that when Jerusalem falls and when the temple is raised to the ground with no stone left standing on the other, that's a foreshadowing. That's a picture of the last day, of the ultimate day when the sun really will be darkened. And the moon really won't give its light. And the stars and the planets will fall from the sky. Now remember, the disciples' question is when? When is this going to happen? Well, Jesus doesn't give them an exact date. Instead, he tells them that there's going to be signs. You'll you'll know. You'll know when that day is coming, when the temple will come crashing down. He says it's going to be like the fig tree. When you see the leaves begin to emerge after the winter, you know that summer is coming. The leaves are a sign. In the same way, Jesus says there will be clear signs that the temple is going to come crashing down. And he gave those signs back in verses 5 to 22. He said that people would come claiming to be him. He said that there would be a battle of nation against nation and that there would be famine, there would be starvation going on. That's all in verses 5 to 22. He said that brother would betray brother and that family members would actually even put each other to death. And he says the temple will be desecrated. And so when these things happen, when those leaves begin to bud, then you know the temple is about to come crashing down and your whole religious system, the whole way that you relate to God is coming down with it. And do you know what happened? 37 years later, in 70 AD, the Roman general Titus sieged and sacked Jerusalem. And we have these descriptions from the historian Josephus, and if you read what Josephus wrote 37 years later as these events were unfolding, they're almost identical to what Jesus said would happen. Jesus said this would be the sign, like the leaves on the fig tree, that the temple would be destroyed. Nation rose up against nation. Family members betraying each other. Josephus even tells a story about a woman who killed her own son and roasted him. She was so hungry. 
And ultimately, after the war was all over, Josephus records these words. He says, Caesar gave orders that they, the Roman army, should now demolish the entire city and temple. And get this. And it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. That's a contemporary historian writing as it's happening, saying the temple, you wouldn't even have known it was there. Remember Jesus' prophetic words that no stone of the temple would be left standing one on the other. It happened. In 70 AD, just as Jesus described it would happen. Which means that Jesus is a prophet. His words were proven true. But you know something? His, that prophecy is not what makes Jesus the ultimate prophet. You see, Jesus isn't just any prophet. He's the ultimate prophet because look at what he says in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. See, prophets tell you the word of the Lord, but Jesus Christ is the word of the Lord. Jesus is showing his disciples that the structures that you think are so solid and so firm and so unmovable, so unshaking, that they could never come crashing down. He's saying those things can and will come down. Even heaven and earth itself won't last forever, he says. But there is one thing that is solid. There's one thing that will last. And those are his words. His words will stand. And so is Jesus your prophet? Is it his words that you trust above all other words? Is his word your ultimate word? Or do you listen more devotedly to the words of conservatism or liberalism or capitalism or any other ism? Or maybe you listen to the lie that to be satisfied, you have to be successful in your career. Or to be satisfied, you have to be powerful. Or to be fulfilled, you have to have a husband or a wife and children. There are all sorts of words out there in our society today that are saying, follow me. Make this advice the ultimate. Make me your ultimate word. Only Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet. Because everything we know, even heaven and earth, will pass away one day, toppled to the ground like the temple in Jerusalem. Yet his word will be the only thing left standing. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's the ultimate prophet. But secondly, he's the ultimate priest. Look at verse 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is going way back a number of years now. I I took a a whole group of people from our church um, out, uh, you know, probably about a three-day drive away into the mountains to go cycling. And uh, we cycled around for maybe four or five days. And on the last day, the day that we were going to leave to go home, we got up that morning and uh, we did a little white water rafting thing. It was really amazing. 
And uh, that got all done, and, uh, and we were getting in uh, the vehicles to go back to our campground to pack up camp, and then we were going to leave to go home. And so, you know, we're kind of rushing because it's getting late in the day, and we wanted to get on the road. And, and so we throw everybody in the vehicles, and we go back to camp, and, you know, we eat a quick lunch as we're packing up and just kind of putting the last thing into the vehicle. Uh, Carl, who was on the trip, walks up. So, oh, hey, Carl, where have you been? You haven't really helped us pack down at all. And he said, that's because you forgot me. What do you mean I forgot you? How could I forget you, Carl? Because you left me at the whitewater rafting place. Oh, my gosh. We were like seconds away from getting in and just driving off. I would have left the guy three days' drive away. And, you know, when you're leading this sort of trip, there are lots of jobs that you're to do. But let's be honest, especially on the last day and the minutes before you leave, there's one job that you have that's more important than any, and that's make sure everybody is in the car. Everybody's going with you. And I had categorically failed at this particular job. I I left a man behind. Well, back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 34, the Lord sends the prophet Ezekiel to the priests and the leaders of the nation of Israel to tell them that they had failed at their job too. Listen to this, Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. And did you notice how these priests failed? They didn't gather the strays. The people were scattered over the whole earth, and nobody searched or looked for them. And so Ezekiel tells the priests in the following verses that the Lord is going to come and remove them as priests. And instead, he will come himself. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but I think the destruction of the temple is God's ultimate removal of the priests. Because from that moment on, there are no priests in Israel. But God himself has come in the person of Jesus. And just look very briefly at what Ezekiel says the Lord is going to do once he removes the priests. He says, for this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. God himself is going to come and shepherd his people. He will be their ultimate priest. And, of course, he does that in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes. He's the great priest. He's the great shepherd. And so those priests fail, but not Jesus, the priest. Look again at verses 26 and 27. Jesus, is, he's come already as a priest, and he's entered the heavenly throne room as our great high priest, the ultimate priest. And look at what he does as priest in verse 27. It says, he gathers his elect. He's doing the job of the priest. 
He goes to the furthest extremes, to the ends of the earth and the heavens. He doesn't leave any strays. He gathers them from where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And he brings them out from the nations. See, when Jesus comes, he comes to do the work of the priest. And he's the ultimate priest because he goes to the ends of the earth and the heavens to get you. Sometimes when I talk to non-Christians, they'll say to me, but don't, don't you think if God were real, he'd send me a sign? Like, don't you think he would just make it obvious to me? Like, if he was real, like, why doesn't he just, you know, put something in front of me that says God is real? And my response to them is always the same. Maybe you're right. Maybe God hasn't shown you some sort of grand sign. There's no writing in the sky. But what do you think the conversation we're having right now is? Do you think that the Lord might be sending you a sign trying to reach you through me? Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe today this is the sign that you've been looking for. Maybe this is how Jesus is gathering you to himself. He's out doing his priestly role. He's bringing in the strays he's bringing you in and maybe this is the way he's done it maybe he's put a friend in your life and invited you here maybe you woke up today and for some reason you thought i have to go to church jesus is the great high priest he's come to gather everyone in and by the way if you're a christian did you notice from this text that your evangelism is spiritually empowered by jesus christ himself the text says that he sends his angels. Now, it could be that he's talking about spiritual beings, but the word Jesus used in the original language could also be translated as just messengers, as in people like you and I who share the message of Jesus. Jesus will send his messengers to the ends of the earth. And so what you're doing as a Christian when you're telling people about Jesus is you're being part of that gathering in that Jesus, the ultimate priest, is doing. Every time you talk to someone about Jesus, you're taking part in his priestly role. And listen, if that's true, not only is it worth doing every chance you get, but it means that when you do it, you're not alone. That Jesus himself is empowering you by his spirit in that moment. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, he's the ultimate prophet, because his word will last forever. And he's also the ultimate priest who goes to the extreme ends of the earth to gather his people. And then finally, he's the ultimate king. In verse 32, there's this transition that happens. Up to verse 32, everything Jesus talked about in chapter 13 happened in the lifetime of the disciples, of the people who he was speaking to, everything all the signs of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the temple itself, it all happened in their lifetime. That's what verse 30 tells us. But then in verse 32, it's a transition. Take a look. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, up until now, Jesus had been talking about things that they'll know. When the leaves of the fig tree come out, you know summer is coming. When the city is under siege and famine comes and family members betray one another, you'll know the destruction of the temple is near. 
But now the transition in verse 32. You don't know. No one knows. Only God the Father knows. Verse 33. You don't know when that time will come. When what time will come? We'll look down at verse 35. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. Now, what is he talking about here? What does he mean the owner of the house will come back? Well, do you remember about six weeks ago at the beginning of this day, of this last day in the temple, Jesus goes on this last trip, and when the day started, Jesus told a parable about a vineyard owner who rented out his vineyard. And the owner sends messengers to come and gather his percentage of the, the fruit, but the tenants beat some of those messengers and they killed others, and ultimately the owner of the vineyard sends his own son, and they shame him, and they beat him, and they throw him out of the vineyard. And then do you remember the point of the parable? Do you remember what the owner was going to do with the wicked tenants? He was going to come and judge them. He was going to come and bring justice on them. That's what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking now about his second coming. He's now talking about the last day. He's talking about the day that every toppling of a city or government in the history of the world has been a foreshadowing of. He's talking about the day that the sun really will be darkened for good and the moon really will no longer shine and the stars really will fall from the skies and the heavenly bodies will shake. It's a day of judgment. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate king who will return to judge. That's what he's talking about here. So, what's this message to us? Why is he giving us such a downer message? Well, five times in verses 32 to 37, Jesus says something like, Be on guard! Be alert! Watch out! Keep watch! In fact, the whole passage, the entire day at the temple, ends with verse 37 when Jesus says this, What I say to you, I say to everyone, Watch! Why would he need to do that? Why would he need to warn us in this way? I mean, won't it be obvious when he's returning? Won't we know? Won't it be obvious that we need to get our lives in order before he comes? Won't we be able to see him from far off and quickly sweep out the house and just put everything in order so that when he comes, he can see it all perfectly arranged? Well, no. Look at verse 35 again. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. Do you know what verse 35 is saying? It's saying that he's going to come when we least expect him. Do you see the three possible times that Jesus mentions in verse 35, evening, midnight, or dawn? In the first century, no one showed up in the evening or at midnight or at dawn because it was too dangerous to travel at night. People only traveled during the day when the sun was shining. And so if you had a guest coming, you'd never expect them to come at night. And so Jesus is saying his second coming will happen at the least expected time. Don't look for tribulation. Don't look for strife. Don't look for wars as a sign of this coming. Those things are going to happen, and they're going to happen all the time. But they're not the sign. Because there is no sign. 
The second coming of Christ is going to come when we least expect it. It's going to come while we're doing our normal day-to-day tasks. That's what verse 34 is about. Jesus will come again when we're just living our normal lives. Working and marrying and having children and building and buying houses and going on holidays. That's when he's going to come. There'll be no warning. So what's his message? Watch, be alert, be on guard. Well, how do we do that? How do we make sure we're ready for his second coming? If we don't know when it's coming, how can we be sure that we're ready for it? Well, we do it by looking at and trusting in what he did the first time he came. The very first time he came, he came in utter humility, born as a baby to a peasant family. Born to a virgin, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which means he was both fully human, born of a woman, and fully God, born of the Spirit. And as he grew, he faced all the trials and temptations of a man, yet he was completely sinless. And what happened to him? Well, the same thing that the wicked tenants of the vineyard did to the owner's son, they did to Jesus. They took him out of the city and they crucified him. But do you know what happened when they crucified him? The very same thing that happens, that the prophets say happens when judgment comes on a city. The sun went dark. And the earth shook as Jesus hung there on a cross and took his last breath. And do you know what is happening there on the cross in that moment in history? God the Father was pouring out all of his judgments for the sins of humanity on his son. The sinless one was being judged so that on the last day, on the day that no one knows when it's coming, that those who look to Jesus Christ on that day Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ will be ready. And he did that for you. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet, the very word of God in human flesh. And do you know what one of the last things he said was? As prophet, he said, Father, forgive them. Listen, to watch for Jesus is to look to the cross and receive the forgiveness that he offers. Jesus Christ is the ultimate priest. He's the one who gathers his elect from the four winds, from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so to watch for him is to hear his voice as he calls to you, to gather you to himself. And he's the ultimate king who is raised from the dead and is ascended to heaven and is returning to bring justice and put put everything that has been wrong right again. And so to watch for him is to obey him and to give your total allegiance to him. And so is he your prophet? Is he your priest? Is he your king? Well, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart, but come to him. Welcome him in as your prophet, as your priest, and as your king. And if you're already a Christian and Jesus is that for you already, then you should be longing for him. You should be captivated by him. But let's just be honest, most of us don't feel that way. 
I mean, maybe we do sometimes, but most of the time we don't feel captivated by Jesus Christ. We're not longing for him. And if that's you, that's a symptom that you're not alert, that you're not keeping watch. You're too distracted with the tasks of life, with eating and drinking and working and marrying and having children and buying houses and everything that life throws at us. You're too distracted by them. And if you're here and you're a Christian, but you're not captivated by Christ, if you're not longing for him, if you're not watching for him, can I just give you a suggestion just this week? Here's a way you can learn to watch for Christ. Try fasting this week. Okay, take the next five days and fast from lunch. This is still the Lent season, and so it's the time in the church calendar where all of the spiritual forefathers that we have, they set aside time for us to learn how to watch for Christ, how to long for him. And, and so I want to suggest that you do that. Don't shortchange it. Give up lunch. And as you begin to feel that hunger, as you begin to feel that desire for food, as, you, as that longing grows up in your stomach, remind yourself, this is how we ought to feel for Christ. So that's my suggestion for you this week. That just as our stomachs would long for food, we'd long for Christ. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. When I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would we learn to long for you? Would we please be filled with the desire for you to return Please, Lord, help us to keep watch. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.